please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 for the reading of our scripture this morning. We'll be starting at verse 1 and we will read to verse 15. These are the words of God. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high, of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let us pray together as we come to God's word today. Our Father, again, we come into your presence and we come before your holy word and we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit who inspired these words, by whom they were breathed out, by whom they were penned through the hands of the apostles and the prophets. And so, Father, we know that these are your words and we know again that they are living and active and that they are intended by you to do work in us to transform our lives by renewing our minds. And so, Father, may we be receptive to this work today. May we not be stubborn. May we not be resilient. May we not resist Your Word. But may we be like these Bereans. May we examine it carefully. May we expose ourselves to it. May we trust it. And Father, may you do your work in us through it. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts in these ways be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
A couple of days ago, one of my boys asked me what my favorite book by a certain author, or favorite fiction book by a certain author was, and I always have trouble um, answering questions, questions like that because my mind does this. There are so many different things, different criteria about different books or different movies or different foods that make them good, Right? And my brain starts tripping over itself trying to sort out all of the categories and choose an overall favorite. And so I just start listing multiple choices. Well, I like this one because, and oh, but then there's this one, and I love this one because of this, and of course then there's this one, and I can't decide. I remember I'm supposed to be picking a favorite, but I never can. And sometimes people ask me what my favorite book of the Bible is. And that's how it goes. Well, I love Romans, of course, so much, right? And Colossians and Hebrews paint just these wonderful, beautiful pictures of the glory and supremacy of Christ. Oh, and Revelation, I really love the book of Revelation. And Ezekiel, such a powerful prophecy of the majesty and the mercy of God. And the the Psalms, don't forget the Psalms, and John's Gospel, and Matthew's, and Mark's, and Luke's. Oh, and Genesis, minor prophets, right? Habakkuk is fantastic. It's just, I mean, for me, it's like going to the donut shop. It's just, right, it's just, it's too hard to pick one. Just give me a bunch. It's just how my brain works. Well, this week, as I was thinking through these first 15 verses of Acts chapter 17 and the, the two sort of contrasting stories that we see in this chapter, one in verses 1 through 9, the other in verses 10 through 15 about how human beings tend to respond to the Word of God when it is proclaimed to them. It made me think of one of my favorite chapters in one of my favorite books in the Bible which is the book of Isaiah, and which is chapter 55. And it made me think of two of my favorite verses in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. So just as we get going here, just at the outset, would you indulge me for a moment before we get to Acts 17 and turn back to Isaiah 55 and bear with me? Because I love this chapter, and I love these verses, and Acts 17 makes me think of them this morning. Isaiah, um, I've I've told you a lot of times in the past when we've talked about Isaiah's prophecy, it's a book that's divided into two main parts, two main themes. The theme of God's wrath and judgment against sin, which dominates the first half of the book, the first 39 chapters of the book, and then the theme of God's mercy and redemption that, that dawns like the rising sun after a long, dark, cold night in chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, right? And in that second half of Isaiah's prophecy, God reveals that the way that comfort and salvation and and mercy and redemption are going to come to His people and, and eventually to the whole world is going to be through a servant that God is going to send into this sin-cursed world who's going to bring words of life and who's going to be full of righteousness and justice and who is going to mercifully suffer 
in order to bear the sins of His people for them. In order to save them from the terrible wrath of God and reconcile them to God when there was no hope that they could do that for themselves. And of course, that suffering servant of the Lord who does all of that is Jesus Christ. And He's revealed to be this great, righteous, suffering, redeeming servant of the Lord in in four songs that are recorded in the second half of the book of Isaiah. In chapter 42 and 49 and 50 and chapter 53. And right after that awesome revelation of the suffering work of the servant Messiah that comes to a culmination in chapter 53, right? He was despised and rejected of men. It pleased the Lord to crush him. By his wounds we were healed, right? After revealing all of this to us that the servant of the Lord would redeem us from the curse of sin by by suffering the full weight of that curse for us, God then proclaims in chapters 54 and 55 that He's going to redeem the entire world itself from the ravages of sin and corruption and decay. And He's going to make a whole new world. And that anyone and everyone who comes to the servants, who comes to Christ, will receive Freely, as a a gift, full pardon, full redemption, everlasting life in that new and redeemed world. So just listen, 55 here, listen to how beautifully the words of this chapter picture that and proclaim all of that with Jesus the suffering servant in the background, with this message of his sacrificial work to save sinners in the background. God says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Because it's free, because it's gift, because it's grace. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Salvation, redemption, life will be a free gift to all who will come. God says in verse 2, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which cannot satisfy? Isn't that what we do? In our sin in this world? We spend our whole lives laboring after things that cannot satisfy our eternal souls. And God says, come and let me fill you freely with that which can satisfy. Listen diligently to me. The merciful Savior pleads with sinners. And eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the people, a a leader and commander for the people. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. This is, 
See, this is the merciful heart of our holy, loving God. Come and I'll redeem you. Come and I'll fill you. Come and I'll give you life everlasting. He's just pleading with sinners from this merciful heart. Verse 6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Don't wait till it's too late. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake their way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. I mean, the reality of the compassionate heart of God who is holy, 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 is mind-blowing, isn't it? And God says that in verse 8. He pleads with sinners to come and freely receive His abundant compassion and mercy. For, He says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. He deals with sinners in a mind-blowing way. He doesn't deal with sinners. He doesn't deal with His enemies in the same way that we would deal with our enemies. He doesn't offer redemption in the way that any of us would ever, ever expect Him to if we really understood how sinful our sin really is. He blows our minds with the majesty of His mercy and with the message that He Himself would suffer for us in order to save us. As high as the heavens are more than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then he says this, and these are the verses that I was thinking about this week in terms of Acts 17, verses 10 through 11 of Isaiah 55. God says that it will be His Word. It will be the message of His unconditional love and the the free offer of salvation and everlasting life. The Word itself, the Gospel itself, raining down from heaven on high, will be what causes the fruit of salvation and life to be born in the hearts of fallen sinners. You look all through the Old Testament, you look at how how hard their hearts were. If God punished them like crazy, they still kept on sinning. If God blessed their socks off with right circumstances, they kept on sinning. What's ever going to change it? I look at my own heart. What? Paul looks at his at the end of chapter 7 of the book of Romans. What, what can possibly deliver me from all of this sin? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here he says it's his word itself. The loving message of the merciful, majestic gospel is what bears the fruit. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Isn't that good news? 
And then in verses 12 and 13, he promises that anyone who, who hears and receives his merciful word will live together and live forever in a new world that is redeemed, that is freed forever from all of the terrible ravages and effects of the curse of sin. No more thorns, no more briars, no more suffering, no more pain, no more decay and corruption. Only perfection and righteousness and peace forever. So, yeah, this is one of my favorite, favorite chapters in all of Scripture because in it God pictures so beautifully and proclaims so powerfully the, the fullness, the richness of His love and the freeness of His grace and His compassion for sinners. The abundance of life that He's just ready to give to any and to all who will come. And the power of His living, active Word to make us able to come. To soften hard hearts. To make people who are dead in sin come to life and bear the fruit of new life. God's Word is powerfully purposeful and purposefully powerful. Just like the rain that falls from the skies. It always falls for a reason. It always accomplishes a purpose. And so God's Word is full of powerful purpose. The rains come down on the dry earth and they return up to the heavens from which they fell, but they never return void. They never return empty. They never return having accomplished no purpose. And so it is, praise be to God, so it is with His Word. It shall accomplish what God purposes. It shall succeed in the thing for which He sent it. Isn't that encouraging to you as someone who needs to be transformed daily by the renewing of your mind? And isn't it encouraging to you as you go out into the darkness of this world, as you're surrounded by sinners, that His Word is powerful? So turn back over to the book of Acts now with me. Again, Acts chapter 17. And I want us to keep this imagery in our mind of the, the rains coming down to the earth and returning to the Sovereign Lord who sent them, always succeeding, always accomplishing His purposes. Now we looked at verses 1-9 through 9 of Acts 17 some last week, and, and our focus there was on how the living, active Word of God, how the Gospel of Jesus Christ which is God's power unto salvation for all who believe, how it turns the world upside down. How it reorients sinful, truth-suppressing minds and selfish, prideful, God-dishonoring hearts and lives. Reorients them to love Him and to love His truth and His goodness and the beauty of His holiness. And in looking at all of that last time, we saw that the phrase, turning the world upside down, was spoken very ironically, wasn't it? It was, it was actually spoken in opposition to the gospel by the unbelieving Jewish people there in Thessalonica who had zero regard for the gospel, zero appreciation for the message 
of God's unconditional love in Jesus Christ. Zero comprehension of their need of salvation through faith in Christ. Zero love for God who has so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son to die and pay the price for all our sin. So, when the reins of the gospel message came down in Thessalonica through Paul and Silas preaching the gospel, there were some Jewish people, verse 4 says, who received the word, who believed. But there were also, according to verse 5, many of the Jewish people who were Jealous, it says. And they rejected the gospel. And they ended up getting really angry about it and forming a mob and, and tearing through the city trying to fall, find Paul and Silas and, and drag them out into the angry crowd to silence them, probably to have them put to death. Because they were jealous, it says. The word jealous there is a translation of the Greek word zelao that sounds a lot more like our English word zealous. And, and it is translated zealous oftentimes in the New Testament. It's the same Greek word translated both ways all throughout the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated zealous in a positive sense, like, like in Titus chapter 2 where Paul said that God has purified for Himself a people who are zealous for good works. That's the same word that sometimes is translated jealous, like here to describe the negative, unbelieving reaction against the gospel and the word of God that these Jewish people in Thessalonica had. That word at its most basic root level has to do with extreme, intense, emotional feelings about something. And so you can see why it gets translated in two different ways. Sometimes the intense feelings are positive. Sometimes the intense feelings are negative. The context determines it. Here in Acts 17, it's describing an extremely negative, passionate feeling that the unbelieving Jews had about the gospel that Paul and Silas were preaching. In the hardness of their hearts, the message that it was necessary for Jesus Christ to suffer and to die and to rise from the dead. That was not a message that they wanted to hear. They were violently opposed to that message and to Paul and Silas for preaching it. And here's what strikes me as I think about the unbelieving, jealous hearts of those people who rejected the Word of God instead of receiving it. The thing that strikes me is that, but for the grace of God, there I would go too. And I did. I mean, I never stirred up an actual mob, right, to try to squelch the message of the gospel. But in my own sinful, hard-hearted unbelief, I raged against God and I raged against the gospel and against Jesus every bit as much as these Jewish people in Thessalonica did. Every bit. Maybe that rage against the gospel wasn't manifested in the same outward kinds of ways that theirs was, but my heart was no less hard, no less resistant, no less jealous of God's glory 
and no less zealous for my own glory and to live my life my own way for the sake of my own desires, to get what I want and pretending that I didn't deserve the everlasting wrath of God's justice and that I was perfectly capable in my own ability of doing whatever needed to be done to be right with Him and to get to heaven. And the reality is, that is every single human heart, isn't it? Every single human heart, unless and until the grace of God through the gospel changes it and softens it and rains down from heaven and accomplishes God's redeeming purpose and succeeds in yielding the fruit of faith and the fruit of life. That's the reality. Apart from the divinely reviving reigns of the living active Word of God, the soil of every single human heart is rock hard and lifeless and incapable of any positive response to the call of the Gospel. And it's only the Gospel itself. It's only the Word of God preached that is able to change that, that is able to soften and awaken and enliven and enable sinners to come to Jesus and to be saved. And that's exactly why all throughout the book of Acts, Paul and Silas and all of the rest of the disciples and apostles, they're not playing any games. They're not trying to cajole people with emotional stimulations and programs and meeting felt needs and whatever else. All throughout the book of Acts, there is an absolute priority placed on preaching and proclaiming the Word of God and the Gospel because that's the only power. And here in this chapter, Luke spells out for us what it looked like in the ministry of the Apostle Paul to do that, to proclaim the Word. Look at the three words that Luke uses to describe how Paul employed the Word of God in doing evangelism, in calling sinners to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. He uses in verse 2 the word reasoning, doesn't he? Paul went in, as was his custom, to the synagogue of the Jews, and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So, Proclaiming the Word doesn't just mean reading it out loud. It means reasoning from it with people. And the word reasoning means to have a discussion with them. It's literally the the Greek word dialegomai, dialogue. What's a dialogue? It's to have a conversation, right? About what the Word of God says and what it means. A dialogue, by definition, is a a two-way thing, isn't it? It involves two people speaking to one another, which means it often involves the other person listening. Evangelism, the ministry of the gospel to sinners, is not just a monologue. And that's sometimes that's why I have a problem sometimes with the method of evangelism where somebody stands on a milk crate on a sidewalk with a microphone and a loudspeaker or a bullhorn just monologuing at people as they walk by. I watched someone do that in downtown Santa Cruz on Pacific, across from the theater, for about 40 minutes. 
And in that time, precisely zero people stopped to listen to what he was saying. Now, it doesn't mean it never works. God is capable of working through whatever means he wants to. And historically, open-air preachers like that have sometimes been used by God to bring people to faith and repentance and to cause powerful revivals through hearing the gospel proclaimed that way. But, but see, Paul's preferred way was to dialogue with people, to sit down with them and discuss it, to have a two-way conversation about what God's Word says and reveals about eternal salvation. And verse 3 says that during the dialogue, during the, the discussion, Paul explained. There's the second word. He explained the meaning of what the Scriptures say. I like the word explained. It's a word that, that just literally means to open something up. It literally means to unpack something. If you go on a, you go on a trip business trip, vacation, whatever, you pack a suitcase full of clothes and toiletries and necessities, all the stuff that you need, right? And all the stuff that you pack into that suitcase won't do you any good if it stays in the suitcase once you get where you're going, right? I mean, it's there with you, the stuff is. It's your stuff, it's good stuff, it's important stuff. And as long as it stays packed away in the suitcase, all the good, important stuff doesn't serve you very well. You can't get dressed for a meeting or for dinner if your clothes stay packed in the suitcase. You can't shave the stubble off your face if the razor stays packed in the suitcase. You can't review your notes for an important meeting if your laptop stays packed you got to open it up. you got to unpack it all for it to do you any good. And see, the Bible is packed, isn't it? From cover to cover, it's packed. From Genesis 1, verse 1 to Revelation 22, verse 21. Packed, full of truth from God that human beings absolutely desperately need to hear and understand. In Genesis 1 and verse 1, the very first verse, we learn where everything that is came from. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything. All the way at the end, Revelation chapter 22, Jesus Christ says, Surely I am coming soon. And then the last words of the Bible are, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. You think it's important for people to understand the first and the last words in God's Word and everything in between? You think it's important for people to understand the importance of the final words where Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. You better believe it's important because when He comes, here's what it's going to be like. Listen, behold, a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, 
following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You think it's important that people understand that Jesus is coming? And why? That's truth from God that it's packed into the scriptures in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. The eternal uncreated, unchanging God who made the heavens and the earth, who created everything that exists in the whole universe, He's coming soon. And when He does, He will judge and make war and strike down the nations and tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Why? Why will He do that when He comes soon? Well, he'll do that because all we like sheep have gone astray from him. Because none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands or even seeks for God. All have turned aside and together become worthless. No one does good in this world, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before the eyes of anyone in this world. All all of that, of course, is, is truth. Packed in from the eternal, almighty, holy God. Packed into the Scriptures. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, where Paul's quoting all all kinds of truth that's packed all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. The origin of everything that exists, the nature and the character of the eternal Almighty God who made it all, who is holy, 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 who is a consuming fire. The definition of human nature having been made and created and fashioned in His image. The reality that we've all gone astray from Him and done what's right in our own eyes and suppressed His truth and exchanged it for lies and refused to honor Him as the God and the Lord who He is. We've we've worshipped the creation instead of the Creator. We've turned the whole world upside down because of our sin and unbelief. The truth that He's righteous and holy and just and will not and cannot ever overlook all sin and injustice in the world. He's got to deal with it. He can't sweep it under the rug because He always makes wrong or makes every wrong to be right and always does what is just and good and always perfectly fits every crime with its perfect punishment. And all of that is why the wages of sin is death. That's why every human has failed to be holy as God is holy and earned and deserves the everlasting torments of God's justice and judgment and righteous wrath in hell. This is what's packed into the Word and and the truth that the same eternal, almighty, unchanging God who is holy and righteous and just, He's also unchangeably loving and merciful and compassionate. 
And He has since eternity past, since before the beginning of the world even. Since before the first humans came into the world and fell into sin. Since before you and I ever existed and perpetuated all that God-dishonoring, self-exalting sin. He, he loved us. He purposed, He planned to do something that we could never ever do for ourselves to deal with our sin. So that we could be saved from the inevitability of His holy righteous wrath when He comes. The truth that God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him might not perish eternally but have everlasting life. All of that truth, right, is packed into the Bible and it is truth that is of unparalleled importance and significance in this world, right? But what do people spend all their lives pursuing? They're looking for the cure for COVID. They're looking for ways to avoid getting COVID. They're looking for the cure for cancer. They're looking for the pursuit of a completely renewable form of energy. They're pursuing human justice and global lasting world peace. And none of those things, see, that people spend their whole lives pursuing come anywhere near the massive eternal importance of all of this Truth that is packed into the pages of God's Word in the Bible. 66 books of the Bible. 1,189 chapters. 31,103 verses. 807,361 words packed into the Bible. Of the eternal uncreated, almighty, triune, holy, righteous, just, merciful truth of God packed into the Bible. And it needs to be unpacked desperately for the minds and the lives of unbelievers who will endure God's wrath eternally when Jesus returns unless they come to Him and repent and believe. I, I know those are big numbers, right? That seems like a lot of content, right? 807,361 words. It's a lot of words. Well, just think about all the words that human beings ordinarily concern themselves with about everything under the sun. Politics, economics, philosophy, history, news, to say nothing of entertainment. How many words throughout the courses of our lives? I read somewhere that the single longest novel that's been written in the history of the world, just one novel, is 22,400 pages long. Who would read that? 3,680,000 words in that one novel. One single work of fiction written in the history of this world. You just think about how many words have been written and how many books of philosophy and history and political theory and scientific discovery and on and on and on, right? Millions and millions, billions of words that human beings spend their whole lives concerning themselves with. All of which ultimately and eternally will prove to be completely worthless in eternity. But here, here are 807,361 words spoken by God Himself about what matters most, about what matters eternally, about what, when Jesus Christ comes soon, will be the only thing that matters. 
And it's all packed into God's Word in the Bible, and it needs to be unpacked. None of it's speculation. All of it is divine revelation. None of it is is mortal, fallible, human beings' ruminations about what might be. It's what the eternal, all-knowing God infallibly says is. It's not just historical reflections on bygone eras and events that are past and done. It's living and it's active. And it is the power of the Almighty God to open blind eyes and to raise dead, lifeless souls and transform lives through the renewing of minds and to conform lives to the very image of the glory of Christ from one level of glory to the next. It needs to be opened up needs to be unpacked, needs to be discussed, needs to be explained, needs to be proved. That's the third word, isn't it? Verse 3 there, Paul was proving. It means to demonstrate, not from fallible, fallen human logic and reasoning, but from the pure and fallible Scriptures themselves, from the inerrant Word of God itself, it needs to be shown that because of God's holiness and righteousness, because of human sin, the only possible way for sinners to be saved is through the suffering and the death and the resurrection of the Son of God. The incarnate one, the God-man who laid down His perfect life as a ransom for many. God Himself had to come. God Himself had to take on human flesh, had to become a man, had to live a sinless life, had to suffer as a servant and die in our place. Because apart from the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And only the blood of a sinless man can pay for the sins of another sinful man. And only the blood of the sinless God-man could pay for the sins of many sinful men. And only if He was raised after the shedding of His blood and after dying, only if He was raised could He be eternally victorious over sin and over death itself and guarantee eternal life to anyone and to everyone who believes on Him. See, that's the Word. It needs to be told. It needs to be explained. That's the sovereign rain that needs to fall on people everywhere who think that this world is all that there is. Who think that they haven't earned eternal death. Who think that they don't deserve the everlasting judgment of the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God when Jesus returns. Because they imagine that in the course of their lives in this world, they've been good enough to enjoy whatever eternal blessings may lay in the hereafter. They don't understand. They don't know. They've never had it unpacked for them. That Jesus Christ, the suffering servant of the Most High God, is the only hope of salvation and everlasting life. I mean, Paul got it, right? He understood what's at stake eternally. He knew what matters in light of eternity because his own dark, hard, lifeless, truth-suppressing, God-denying heart had been divinely, supernaturally enlightened and softened and made alive by the driving rains 
of the living, active, supernaturally powerful word of God and gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why everywhere Paul goes, all throughout Syria, all throughout Cyprus, all throughout Asia, now Macedonia, everywhere he goes, anyone he meets, any human being in this world he comes into contact with, Paul knows there will be no harder, darker, deader heart than my heart that I'm ever going to meet out there. And he knows that the only thing, the only power that can ever turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and possibly till the dead, fallow soil of of sinful human hearts and fertilize it and cause life and faith to, to grow out of it, the only power is the divinely, supernaturally powerful, living, active Word of God. The same Word, the same God-given rain from heaven that fell with divine power and cultivated life in Paul's own hard, dead, dark heart. And he knows the promise of Isaiah 55. God's Word will succeed in accomplishing all of God's purposes for which He sends it. So anywhere and everywhere Paul went, his number one priority was to proclaim the Word was to dialogue with people about the Word of God, to unpack it, to explain it, to proclaim it in all of its power and darkness-shattering brilliance. Because he knows, Romans 10, right? Living faith comes to dead, fallow, lifeless hearts from hearing the Word of God. And even when Paul faithfully and diligently did this. Everywhere he went and with everyone he met, when he reasoned and dialogued and explained and proved the gospel from God's Word, still, there were stubborn, willful, hard-hearted, jealous unbelievers who rejected the gospel and the Word of God, right? Why was that? Was it because Paul didn't do a good enough job? Explaining and reasoning and proving the gospel? No. Was it because the word ceased to be powerful? No. It's because the sinful human heart is so desperately depraved and so resiliently opposed to God's word that apart from God supernaturally changing it, there's no more hope of faith in Christ growing in it then there is hope of a redwood tree growing out of the middle of a frozen piece of granite that's buried a thousand feet deep in the tundra in Antarctica. Unless God's Word changes it. And we don't know who God purposes to change through His Word, do we? We can't look out there and put on special glasses like a sci-fi movie and, and see the ones that have been marked out since before the creation of the world for eternal redemption and say, well, I'm not going to waste time with these people. I'm going to go preach to these. Just preach it. Tell everybody. And let God decide whose hearts to melt and to give life to. But everyone who rejects it rejects it because their hearts are dead as all our hearts were. The natural person, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, and and by natural he means the person whose spiritual nature is dead in sin, 
which is true of every human being in Adam, the natural person, by virtue of this natural condition of of spiritual deadness of heart, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's what's real and true of every single human being by nature in Adam, in our sinful state. Physically, we have life. Our our physical ears work. Our physical brains function. But our souls, our hearts, our spiritual selves by nature are dead. Hard as a rock, cold as ice towards God. Completely unable to positively respond to Him. Completely unable to accept the things that His Spirit proclaims. I hear your words, I understand your words, I hate your words, I I reject your words, I don't want your words. Because Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, we are all by nature dead in sins and trespasses. Dead as Lazarus in his tomb. Dead as a doornail. Spiritually dead, utterly unresponsive to God in our sins and trespasses. And 2 Corinthians 4.4, Satan, the wicked, godless ruler of this world, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And so, Romans 8, verses 6 through 8, that we read a little earlier, all of our minds, by nature, that are set on the sinful flesh instead of on the truth of God, will reject His Word. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God and does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And that's not a hole that any human being can ever possibly dig themselves out of. It's not even a hole that we admit that we're in. Not even a hole that we would ever be the least bit inclined to try to dig ourselves out of. It's not a condition that any human being has the least bit of desire or ability to do anything to change. Any more than a leopard has the inclination or ability to change its spots. Jeremiah 13.23, right? Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Or the leopard change his spots? Then also, you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So what accounts for these Jewish people in Thessalonica, along with many Gentiles who didn't reject the word of God and the gospel? who received it, who believed it. What accounts for all the Jewish people in Berea in verses 10 through 15 who responded to the Word of God so differently than their Jewish counterparts back in Thessalonica? I mean, in Berea, Paul didn't do anything different, did he? He adopted the same strategy. He got run out of town. They snuck him out by night. He heads to Berea with Silas straight to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Embrace the same methodology as they always did. Dialoguing from the scriptures, explaining the meaning, unpacking the truth, proving, demonstrating from the clear word of God why it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to die and to be raised. And that Jesus is this Christ. But in Berea, there was no riot. There was no mob whipped up by angry, jealous, unbelieving Jews to take Paul and Silas by force and Bring them out in the streets and have their way with them. 
In Berea, the Jewish people who heard Paul reasoning from the Scriptures and understood the Word of God's proof that Jesus is the true Christ, the suffering servant, who needed to suffer, who had to die, and who needed to be raised, it says they were noble in Berea. The word just means they were willing to learn. There was an open-mindedness to what the Word of God says. They didn't suppress it in their stubborn, sinful, prideful, hard-hearted unrighteousness. They received the Word of God for what it was. Why? They examined the Scriptures to make sure with open minds that what Paul was telling them was what God was telling them. And when they saw that it was, they received it. They believed it. Why? What was the difference between the Jews in Berea and the Jews in Thessalonica and back in Philippi? Some ethnic difference? Nope. Geography have anything to do with it? Nope. Culture? Education? Intellect? Was there a difference in Paul's approach? Paul's message? Paul's method? No, he did the same thing every time. And there is no natural difference that could explain these different responses to God's Word because Paul himself says that naturally all human beings left to themselves will suppress God's truth and are by Satan's devices blind to it and cannot understand it or accept it. So the difference between the Bereans who accepted and the Thessalonians and the Philippians who rejected has nothing to do, naturally speaking, with the Bereans or the Thessalonians or the Philippians as fallen, sinful human beings. There are none righteous. No, not one. The Berean Jews were not naturally less sinful or more righteous or less spiritually blind, or less spiritually dead than the Thessalonian Jews. The only objective difference was the supernatural difference that the power of God, through the Word of God, made in their minds and made in their hearts and made in their lives, softening hard hearts, opening blind eyes, subduing their pride, Enabling them to examine the Scriptures open-mindedly and objectively and to receive the Word of God for what it is. When I was a young person, I lived in such rebellion against God who made me in His image. And I did it all right alongside so many other sinners who also defied God, who also flouted God's glory and honor. And then God saved me. God found me. God opened my eyes. God brought me home when I wasn't even looking to be found or brought home. And there were so many of those friends of mine also living in sin, also defying Him, doing what was right in their own eyes, who still are, who never came home, who stayed blind, who remain to this day lost. Why? 
Was I better? Was I smarter? Was I more righteous? Was I more objectively honest or open to God's truth? I can be sure to tell you absolutely none of that's true. The only reason, the only explanation is the supernatural, sovereign, divine grace of God that opened my blind eyes and gave life to my dead, rock-hard soul and sought me when I wasn't even looking and saved me when I wasn't even seeking. God said, here I am, here I am, when I could have cared less. I got all I need down here, God. I'm good. Until the sovereign reign of God's living, active word fell on my dead, dark, lifeless heart because my parents said, we're bringing this boy to church. We're bringing him somewhere that can open up and talk to him about the word and discuss it with him. (laughs) That can unpack it and explain it and prove how desperately he needs a savior. miraculously, supernaturally, in no way that I can take any bit of credit for, God gave me life. Implanted living faith, opened blind eyes. And I responded. I did. Yes. I believed. I did. I ran to Jesus. I did. I chose. I did. But only because He first chose me. None of it was because of me. All of it was because He gave me the sight. He gave me the eyes to see. He gave me the faith to believe. He gave me the legs with which to run to Jesus. And all of it came by the sovereign power and merciful purpose of God that succeeded through the Word. Apart from me, in spite of me, through that life-giving rain, that comes down from heaven and never returns void and gives life to whatever God wants to give life to. There's there's enough sin, there's enough selfishness, there's enough pride left remaining in my flesh and my body staining me in this life that God has redeemed that there's no way that I could ever take any credit for any of the unconditional love and Undeserved grace that God has rained down on my soul. It's all His love. It's all His grace. It's all His eternal saving purpose. It's all higher than anything I could ever imagine or have or do. It's all because of what He did. And I hope all of us here who know Him can can say the same sorts of things can say amen to all of that because none of us would ever know Him unless He first knew us. None of us would ever love Him unless He first loved us with sovereign, redeeming love. And I hope that because none of us would have ever looked for Him or asked for Him or sought Him unless He came and found us as the Good Shepherd who went after that lost sheep, I hope that that all of us who are known by God and who have had that heaven-sent rain poured out upon us will feel the urgency that Paul felt to be the vessels and the vehicles and the conduits of the heavenly rain of God's living word 
pouring it out in life-giving power on eternal souls all around us? What else is more important in your life? What else matters? What are we, what are we doing in this world? What are we living for? There are sinners out there all around us. They live next door to you. They work at the next desk beside yours. They're family members of yours. They're friends of yours. They're colleagues and co-workers. And they need so desperately to hear and to be given the gift of faith that comes through hearing the Word of Christ, right? Let's, we're out of time, so let's pray today that God will give us gratitude and appreciation and love and urgency for His Word. Our God, how grateful we are that You sent Your only begotten Son to die for us. That He came and did what we could never have done. That where we could never have used the law as a ladder to climb our way up into heaven and claw our way into Your good graces, You sent Jesus and He came down here. And He lived and He died and He was raised. And so we have life. And so, Father, our eyes have been opened. Our hearts have been made new. We have been filled with a love by the God who has first loved us. And we would ask this morning that you would stir in us that love. And that you would give us a sense of urgency, Father, to go and to speak the truth of the Scriptures and of the Gospel in love. To unpack it. And to urgently plead with sinners to come because we know the promise of your word is that you will not turn anyone away who comes. And so, Father, give us your grace and give us your strength and give us confidence in your living and active word to do all that you purpose for it to do and to succeed. Even when it seems to us like nothing can succeed in this world. Help us to know your word is power. Father, we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our King. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together. Page 12, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord.